Today on the Matt Walsh Show, a woman tells her detransition story and is ruthlessly mocked, ridiculed, and condemned by trans activists for it. This is the reality that people who regret their transitions face. Also, Kanye West is no longer allowed to bank with J.P. Morgan Chase. Meanwhile, the same bank kept its relationship with Jeffrey Epstein for 15 years. Also, what happened to New York City Mayor Eric Adams and his campaign pledges to uh, be tough on crime? Whatever happened with that? Plus, a polyamorous union is granted legal recognition. And in our daily cancellation, National Coming Out Day came and went this week with many people clamoring to be included in the LGBT club because that's what you do with a victim group, right? You want to be part of it. We'll talk about all of that and more today on The Matt Wall Show. You know, in my line of work, I end up spending a lot of time on my phone, preparing for the show, answering emails, and, uh, well, I don't really answer emails at all, but preparing for the show anyway. And of course, trolling blue check marks on Twitter. It's my life calling. But what's scary is my phone carrier and yours too collects data on whatever it is I'm doing online. Mainstream phone companies like Verizon are even admitting to tracking your data so they can better understand your interests, as they put it, when really all they want to do is sell your activity to advertisers. The more they can get on you, the larger their paycheck, which is why I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is an app that prevents your phone carrier from being able to see the sites you visit and sell it off to third parties. All it takes is one tap of the button, and all of your network data gets encrypted and rerouted through ExpressVPN's secure servers for ultimate privacy. Not only does it shield your web browsing, ExpressVPN protects all of your network data so you can stay private even when using your favorite apps. When your phone carrier tracks you, that's a gross, inv gross invasion of privacy. You can either keep letting them cash in on you or you can visit expressvpn.com slash Walsh to get the same VPN that I use and trust. Take back your online privacy today and use my link to get three extra months free. That's expressvpn.com slash Walsh, expressvpn.com slash Walsh. Well, you've perhaps seen uh, this video circulating over the past several days. It's not unlike the sorts of videos we've seen with increasing and tragic regularity recently. In this case, it's a girl named Casey Miller, who's now 21 years old, began the process of gender transition when she was 16 years old. So she now, like so many others before her and so many millions more to come after her, deeply regrets what was done to her. And I will not say that she regrets what she did, because this is not something that she did. She didn't decide to uh, aggressively indoctrinate herself into a cult when she was at an impressionable young age. She didn't choose to live in a society that's lost its grip on reality. All of that was inflicted on her. She is a victim. And now here she is. Hey, y'all. Um, so I got out of my haircut because um, my hair was driving me nuts. And I shaved it because I'm tired of watching my hair thin out and it's less distressing if I shave it. So when I talk about being too far gone, not, I don't really know what else to call it. Um, this is what I mean. This is how deep my voice is. Um, <clears throat> it's gotten deeper over time and it's settled. Um, this is what I mean by hair loss. Um, and it just keeps getting worse. It keeps thinning. It keeps receding backwards. Um, you know, and I'm not exactly sure that's coming back. Um, those are the main things when I talk about being androgenized um, to a point of no return. Um, I really don't see those being fixable. So that's when I talk about, you know, just kind of staying how I am, regardless of how I feel. Um, that's why, just because I, I don't really see me personally being able to come back from what's happened so far. So I hope that's a little explanatory. Um, 
just to kind of give a little bit more of a, um, like, kind of the, let me reword that, just to kind of, you know, talk about, like, give a more awareness to the situation, um, kind of, so you can see where I'm at. Words are not working well with me right now. I'm just gonna cut this off. There you go. You know, this this is what happens when you give a woman testosterone This for five years. This is what happens, essentially. So, you know, that's it. Stay safe. So that's the reality that she is uh, trapped in. And although she can live a meaningful life, obviously, and a fulfilling life, the truth is that much of what was done to her cannot be reversed. And she was convinced at 16 that she wanted something. And now she has to live with what the 16-year-old version of herself thought she wanted forever. As we can see in the video, she's losing her hair. She has a receding hairline at the age of 21. A very common side effect of hormone treatment for gender-confused girls. You have to remember that girls are, are um, not meant to have these levels of testosterone in their systems. Their bodies are not built for that. The result is oftentimes rapid hair loss, not to mention in many cases uh, you know, weight gain, acne, those, those are, and, and those are only the, the, the relatively surface level problems. But even the seemingly cosmetic side effects are important because girls who transition, all of them, are trying to turn themselves into something that is obviously a fantasy. It's not real. So they can, they ne they can never actually be males. They have some, they have some kind of vision of the kind of man, the kind of male they think they can become, but that vision isn't real and it will never be real. The same goes in the reverse for boys who try to transition in the other direction. These girls, because they're confused and they've been brainwashed and indoctrinated, they believe that in some ineffable, mysterious way, their fundamental essence is that of a man. They're, uh, you know, a boy trapped in a girl's body, as it's often expressed. And yet none of them imagine that this boy trapped inside them is, is overweight with a receding hairline or chronic acne. And I don't say that obviously to make a joke out of it at all. There's nothing remotely funny about this. My point is that, is that, is that every single gender confused person, male or female, is grasping for some vision, some fantasy of themselves that isn't real and will never be real. The girl re rejects her femaleness in favor of her fantasy of maleness, but she'll never achieve it. She'll never, she'll never arrive at her destination. She'll be stuck instead in some sort of hellish limbo, having lost her femininity, but not having replaced it with anything like masculinity. Certainly not the sort of masculinity that she had imagined in her head. She'll be stuck with some of the worst aspects of, of being a male, you know, thinning hair, for example, but she's not going to actually be a male. One of the cruelest ironies is that a transitioned, quote-unquote, female will forever sound something like an adolescent boy going through puberty, but will have the thinning hair and, and sometimes the beer gut of a 40-year-old. And yet, still will not look like an adolescent boy or a 40-year-old man. Th this is what's being sold to teenage girls. It's a ticket to the worst of all possible worlds. That's what's being sold to them. Only they're not being told that that's what's being sold to them. They're being sold on the surface a fantasy, and then this is what they get. But there's, there's another aspect to this story that hasn't gotten as much attention. Uh, the girl who changes her mind will 
not only be stuck with the irreversible changes inflicted on her body, but to add vicious insult to severe injury, she will also have to endure the venomous attacks from trans activists who will treat her like a traitor if she decides that she'd rather embrace her biological identity than continue living a lie. So the, the comments under Casey's video on Twitter are overrun with trans people ruthlessly insulting and mocking her. Ruthless. This includes prominent trans activists with large followings who have sent their legions to tear this girl to shreds. She's already suffering. She's already in a very dark place, obviously. And they're trying to send her right over the edge. This is someone suffering, and their response is to mock her and belittle her and express contempt for her. Not only that, but most of them are still referring to her as him, you know, so much for preferred pronouns. They've decided that she's a man and can never not be a man, no matter what she says about herself. Now, I would go through and uh, read you examples of the sorts of things they're saying, but I think that would, be, that would not be very productive. And I also don't really want to amplify these insults, though you can go to her page and see it for yourself. So this is something to keep in mind when, when you, and this is why it's important, because when you hear about uh, the, the number of detransitioners and people who are expressing regret about their transitions, these are only the people willing to speak out in spite of the mockery and threats and alienation and social ostracization they'll experience because of it. How many more would be going public if not for their fear of experiencing the exact same kind of treatment? And also remember this when you hear the claim that uh, younger children are only socially transitioning and that the social transition, uh, it's not as serious as a medical transition. When you hear that claim, keep this in mind. Oh, we only socially transition five-year-olds, they say. It's not like we're performing surgery on them. Yes, well, we'll see how long that lasts because that's, they, they would like to, get, to a point, get to a point where they're performing surgery on five-year-olds. But regardless, the social transition leads inexorably and inevitably to the medical transition because once the child has started down this path, it becomes quickly clear to him that there will be a severe social penalty for changing course. So for all the talk of affirmation and acceptance among left-wing trans activists, it's no surprise that these are, without question, the least affirming and accepting human beings on the face of the planet. Why is that? Well, simply because they care for nothing and no one but themselves. I mean, they, they talk of affirmation, but they don't mean it in a, as a universal principle. They don't care about you being affirmed. They don't give a damn about you. You can go to hell. You can die. The way they're treating this girl, as far as they're concerned, she can die. She can kill herself. I mean, some of them are very, very open about that. They, they, her, val- her life does not matter to them. She is dirt. She's scum. She's a traitor, as far as they see it. The only sort of affirmation that they care about or demand is affirmation of themselves and of their own life choices. That's it. It's all about them individually. As they see it, the entire human race exists purely for this purpose, to affirm them and make them feel better. And nobody has any other purpose on earth but that, which is why if you don't do that, if you don't affirm, then you, then you can die too. Your life has no meaning because your only purpose in life is to affirm them personally. It's the only reason you're here. A detrans person then is, is the greatest affront of all because she makes the trans activist feel bad about his choices. 
she lays bare the truth behind all the lies that he tells himself and the world. Her decision, her life path is a, is a direct attack on him as he perceives it. Because he sees everything as directly relating to him. He cannot conceive of realities that exist apart from him or of a universe in which he is not the center. Hyper-narcissism is the engine that drives the trans movement and, and everything else on the left. It's no surprise then to, to see this reaction. Also, one of the undying truths of life, and uh, it's a cliche, but it's true, is that misery loves company. The trans activist is miserable and unhappy. And he lashes out at anyone who tries to escape the prison that he has put himself into. You, you are not allowed to leave this behind and strive for a, a more whole and complete life, one lived in harmony with your biological nature rather than at war with it. You're not allowed to do that because he's not doing that. And he wants you to remain trapped and in despair. Same as him. But that also goes back to the narcissism. And that's what lies at the core of all of this. Now let's get to our five headlines. A couple of notes uh, that I, I think it's uh, relevant to, to bring them now. First of all, we are, I guess, sort of at the, the end of our first leg of our uh, uh, What is a Woman College tour. And University of Houston will be tonight. We're in Houston right now. And... Um, uh, it's been, uh, it's just been extraordinary so far. Everywhere we've went, we went through, this will be our fourth place, and every college we've gone to have been, uh, been sold-out crowds, jam-packed rooms and auditoriums. I mean, we're filling auditoriums to capacity and beyond that, turning people away because we can't fit everybody in. Uh, and and uh, and the protesters are showing up, too. You know, protest, and they're, they're planning on a big protest tonight. We'll see if it materializes or not. But uh, it doesn't matter because they are vastly outnumbered by everybody else. Um, and this is, a, a, again, college campus tour. And we're talking about gender ideology. And it's, it's well known that I am, a, I am a strident critic of it. And they're packing the room. I think what that tells us is that college students, not all of them anyway, are, um, are, are, have, have bought into gender ideology quite to the extent that we're being told. So there is hope yet. And uh, and also as we, as we kind of wrap this up, and we'll be we'll be heading back out on the road to do more colleges in a couple of weeks. But before that, we're going back to Nashville, and on October 21st, that's uh, next Friday, outside the state capitol in Nashville, we're going to have our rally to end child mutilation. Expecting a big crowd there as well. And uh, just to remind you that you know we, we had a, a major victory with Vanderbilt, but that that's that's just the beginning. Um, that by no means uh, translates into, hey, we can just pack up our bags and go home and wipe our hands of it and say, hey, we, we won. We can't do that. The fight continues, and it'll continue on Friday, so we hope to see you there next Friday, October 21st. All right, so checking in to begin with, with the crime problem in New York, where violent crime, murder, property crime, all kinds of crime are continuing to skyrocket. Not hard to understand why. Here's uh, Fox News, quote, a 31-year-old New York City man who was arrested and released without bail last month after terrorizing McDonald's patrons with an axe was arrested again this week for graffiti, stealing a bike, and evading police, and was again released without bail. Michael Palacios, Palacios was approached by police uh, Sunday evening after being spotted spraying graffiti in Brooklyn, prompting him to snatch an expensive bike from a nearby coffee shop. 
and lead officers on a chase before eventually being arrested. The bike valued at $3,500 was damaged during the chase. The New York City, the New York Police Department confirmed to Fox News Digital. The department says that the criminal here was found in possession of graffiti paraphernalia and authorities suspect he's also responsible for another graffiti incident in Queens in June. He was charged with grand larceny, two counts of criminal mischief, possession of stolen property, making graffiti and possession of graffiti instrument. He was also charged for the graffiti incident in June. And, but he was released right away. So you may remember this guy. He's the guy from the video that was circulating a few weeks ago where he was uh, running around McDonald's with an axe, smashing things and terrorizing customers. That's something you can do in New York now. Just pull an axe out and start wielding it in the middle of a fast food restaurant. He was arrested for that and immediately released. And then he goes out and commits more crimes, and he's arrested for those and immediately released. Democrats are doing literally everything they can to create as much crime as they possibly can. They're going out of their way, while also going to increasingly desperate lengths to deny that this surge is happening. So CNN contributor Errol Louise tweeted a, a short video yesterday with this caption. Here's the caption. Going home on the violent New York City subways, riders paralyzed with fright. This is all sarcastic, of course, because then in the video, you can see people standing around and uh, everything is fine. So he's, he's, ma- he's making a mockery of people that are complaining about crime in New York City. This is their counter argument. OK, this is what counts as a counter argument for them. It, it's uh, oh, yeah, well, look at this section of the subway where for these 10 seconds, nobody's being stabbed. You see, crime is a myth. Ha. You claim there's a crime problem, but but see, look at these four people who are not currently being murdered. Got you now. This is what this is. A, this qualifies as a rebuttal on the left. And I'm, here's what's going to happen. This video will be used by fact checking sites. If you claim on Twitter now that the crime is on the rise in New York, they will they're going to label it false. Or they're going to say false, missing context, and then you click on the link and it's going to send you to this video, which proves that, you know, because it proves, yeah, you say crime is uh, on the rise, but, but this video proves that there are at least some occasions where in some parts of the city, there are no crimes visibly in progress, which means that crime isn't a problem at all. These tactics are just a, a kind of political masturbation for Democrats, though. That's really it is, because it satisfies them. It makes them feel better. But it doesn't fool anybody else. People who live in these communities, they know the truth. And and Democrats will suffer politically because of it. I agree with Ann Coulter wrote a piece about this yesterday. And she says, and I agree with her, that she says that if, if, if Eric Adams in New York, New York City mayor, if he had actually made good on his promise to cut crime, if he'd actually been tough on crime as he promised, uh, that's the way that he was elected. He was even getting credit and props from the right because of the way that he was talking about the crime problem. He was talking about it as though it is a problem, which is groundbreaking on the left. Well, you're, you're willing to admit that violent crime is a problem and shouldn't happen and that steps should be taken to prevent it? Wow, that's revolutionary. You don't hear this from Democrats. So that's what he said, And uh, but then he he gets in there and doesn't do anything about it. If he, had, if he had actually been tough on crime, as he promised, he would, pro- he would walk into the White House in 2024, I think. A black mayor of New York who's charismatic, he is charismatic, and 
demonstrates actual real concern for the problems in his community and is willing to do what needs to be done to solve them and is not a full-on far-left lunatic, but is only slightly, is only a slight lunatic, not a, far, not, not a full-on lunatic, uh, he'd be a formidable political force, I think. But he's a Democrat, and that precludes him from trying to solve real problems. They're just, they're not allowed to try to solve real problems. One other thing I'll say about this is that I, I struggle to do um, what a lot of people on the right do with these, these, this, these stories now about crime in the big cities. And a lot of conservatives will say, well, these people voted for it. Um, let them have it. This is what they wanted. You're getting what you wanted. Not my problem. I don't care. I'm not going to talk about it. I understand that attitude. And it is true that the voters are voting for this. This is what they're voting for. And every time a new, another election comes up, they have a chance. It's not like there aren't, uh, there aren't other options. They have a chance to vote for someone who might actually try to prevent crime and punish it, and they choose not to. So I get that, and, and I understand it, and uh, that makes sense. But I have trouble accepting that answer, and the reason simply is that uh, I don't want the criminals to win. Yeah, the voters in these cities, they are getting what they want. In New York City, despite what this CNN contributor might be claiming, it's just doing your normal uh, morning commute is a danger now. You have to worry about that. You're on the subway. You got to worry about some crazed lunatic running along and just like throwing you onto the subway tracks or assaulting you randomly or killing you for no reason. I mean, these are the things you got to worry about. And uh, But you voted for it. And so it's hard for me to have a lot of sympathy. And yet, you know, my desire for these crimes to be punished is less, it's not rooted so much in sympathy for the idiots who vote for it, but it's rooted in, uh, like we talked about yesterday, a desire for justice. And I don't want these criminals to win. I want them to be punished because, uh, because they, they need to be. And as I said, if they are punished, that would help the Democrats. If these Democrat mayors started punishing crime, it would help them politically. I want it to happen because I want these criminals to be punished. That's what they deserve. It's justice. And I cannot simply just accept injustice. You have to accept it because it exists in the world and you can't stop it. But, but, uh, but I, I, I still desire for it to be, for it to be righted. Okay, uh, this is from the Daily Wire. J.P. Morgan Chase said in a statement obtained by the Daily Wire on Wednesday that it has ended its banking relationship with rapper Kanye West's business. The statement, which was scant on details, was obtained by Candace Owens on the same day that Owens launched her new documentary in the Daily Wire, The Greatest Lie Ever Sold, which is being um, uh, very well received by, by the audience. And they said, the bank said in, a, in an email to West, quote, we are sending this letter to confirm our recent discussion with, and then it's redacted, that J.P. Morgan Chase Bank um, has decided to end its banking relationship with Yeezy LLC. To provide the company with sufficient time to transition to another financial institution, we will continue to maintain the accounts uh, until November 21st, 2022. Now, the statement goes on, but they don't really explain why they're doing this. And But we can we can assume. You know, there might, there might be more to this. Maybe there's more information that will come out. But we've seen this kind of thing before. We've heard this song before. And it, it cannot be a coincidence that they're making this announcement at right at the time, during the week, during this news cycle, when... 
Kanye West is being criticized for the things that he's saying. And, and, and now that's when they come along and they say, well, we're ending our banking relationship with you. We've seen this before. This is, this is what they do. All you need to know about this is that J.P. Morgan Chase, okay, they're, they're ending their business with Kanye West seemingly because he has said controversial things. And yet, J.P. Morgan Chase kept doing business with Jeffrey Epstein for 15 years. They kept him as a client, okay, for, I'm, I'm looking this up right now, yeah, for 15 years. And that means they kept him as a client for five years after he was charged with sex crimes against children. They knew what this guy was all about, and they kept him on board. In fact, this was a story that came out a little while ago that they, there were internal messages going back and forth where they, people within the banking, uh, within J.P. Morgan Chase, were acknowledging who this guy was. They know what he's about, and they decided to keep him anyway. Why did they keep him? Well, because, um, first of all, lots of wealthy bankers were themselves clients of Epstein, and also because these decisions are not based on any sort of ethical standard. That's not what this is about. And what they're doing here to Kanye West, it is, it is stage setting. And you might think, and maybe you take some comfort in saying, well, this is Kanye West. Uh, also, he said stuff that I don't say, and so I don't got to worry about it. Uh, that's it. That is a that is false reassurance that you're giving yourself. Because the other way of looking at it, which I think is the more accurate way, it's not that oh they, well they would only do this to Kanye, not me. It's that if they'll do that to Kanye West, of course they'll do it to you. He's world famous. He's got lots of money. J.P. Morgan Chase is making lots of money off of him and his company. They've got millions of dollars at stake here also. And they're going to give that up for ideological reasons and political reasons. So if they would do that to him, of course they would do it to you or to me. And it's uh, so and, and, and that's where you start. You start with somebody like Kanye West, who, although he's a mainstream world famous figure, um, some of his statements and ideas are fringe. And so in a, in a certain sense, you're kind of like starting on the fringes, which is where it always begins. But it's about setting the stage and, the, and uh, the, setting a precedent. And the precedent here is that if you say things we don't like, you can't, do, you can't bank with us anymore. Pushing people to the you know, alienation, ostracization, pushing people to the outskirts of society. That's what it's about. The Daily Wire has this, Planned Parenthood has gone all in on child gender transition services, which means you are paying for them. The nation's largest abortion provider offers gender transition services at hundreds of clinics across the country. And because Planned Parenthood and its affiliates get more than half a billion dollars in government funding every year, um, that's Americans' taxpayer dollars at work. At least 344 Planned Parenthood clinics in 41 states across the country currently offer gender transition services, according to its website, Many clinics offer cross-sex hormones for minors, and while and um, some provide puberty blockers. While we might not blink at such a leftist organization dabbling in the medical transition market, it's a significant departure from Planned Parenthood's core mission. Helping kids move towards sex change is not clearly related to family planning, and yet this is what they're getting into. Now, so yes, Planned Parenthood is doing this. We've, we've been talking about how Planned Parenthood is getting more and more into this business because, and it's a, a lot of it is simply financial. They're losing money. 
in the in the in the child murder business. They're losing money there, and so now they're getting into the child mutilation business. But it's also important to note, as Daily Wire does here, that we are paying for it. Why are we paying for it? Well, because Republicans ran the government for two years and didn't do a damn thing about it. Didn't even try. Didn't even try. They had the White House and Congress for two years. Didn't even try to defund Planned Parenthood. Can you imagine this going the other way? Because it never would. Can you imagine if, uh, if taxpayers were giving half a billion dollars a year to, I don't know, the NRA, and then, and then Democrats won the White House and majorities in Congress, and they decided to keep sending the checks? Would that ever happen? Now, we would never send half a billion dollar, dollars a year in tax money to, to the NRA in the first place. But if we were, could you, could, could you see the Democrats just going along with it? That would be unthinkable. The first thing they do, the very first thing they would do is cut off that gravy train. Republicans, on the other hand, with, uh, with them, there was barely a discussion about it. They didn't even think about doing it. No effort was made. And the good thing about defunding Planned Parenthood, aside from the obvious advantages, the other one is that if Democrats are, because you could always say, well, you defund Planned Parenthood and then, and then Democrats could come into office and they just reinstate it. Okay, even if they do, you've still cut it off for however many years, which is a positive good. But also, if the Democrats are going to reinstate funding, then you force them to reinstate it. It's something they have to actively do and make the case for it. Actually make the case to the public. Here's why we have to give, here's this this business, and they kill babies, and they make money killing babies, and they uh, castrate children and make money on that. And you all need to fund them to the tune of $500 million a year. Let them make that case. They don't even have to make the case for it right now. Because in, in essence, Planned Parenthood is basically on an automatic subscription renewal system where the taxpayers don't notice it. And it's never talked about. I can, there are many things I can never forgive the Republican Party for. This is one of them. That they, they didn't even make it into a conversation. And what's the excuse? There's always some weak, limp-wristed excuse about, well, it was a filibuster. They'd filibuster. So get rid of the filibuster and pass it. And at a minimum, you try to do it. You make it a conversation. You make it a fight. Make them make, uh, present their arguments in favor of taking money from American families, taking money out of your, out of your children, taking food out of your children's mouths, and taking that and giving it to the, these butchers. Republicans didn't even force them to make the argument. To- I, just totally unforgivable. Unforgivable cowardice. All right. What else do we got here? Okay, here's something a little less political. So the, the website studyfinds.org has this. It says, the majority of us wake up feeling stressed and take an average of 33 minutes before finally feeling human, according to a new survey. Respondents agree that brushing their teeth, eating breakfast, and downing a cup of coffee are an absolute must-do within the first 60 minutes. Having a hot shower, catching up on the news, and making the bed are also other actions done first thing in the morning to get ready for the day. Who makes their bed 
That's the point. Well, my wife does, but I've never understood the point of it. For many, however, there is no escaping waking up on the wrong side of the bed. One in six feel stressed the moment they wake up. Okay, I'm bringing this up because everybody knows the reason for this, right? I mean, why, why does it, you, you wake up feeling stressed, you wake up feeling not even human, is apparently the way it's being described. Well, it's because we're all waking up and looking at our phones right away. This is the most toxic habit imaginable. And, uh, and most of us are guilty. I know that I am. I try to fight it. I try not to do it. It's a constant struggle because for some reason there's an impulse. And then for me, especially I have, I have this built-in excuse I can always tell myself, which is, well, this is what I do for a living. I wake up. It's even worse than for me, I think, because it's like I wake up and I'm immediately, boom, I'm working. It's like I've got, I've got half a second in between my eyes opening and I'm on the phone and basically working. So um, th- that's the problem. We, we lay down in bed. Last thing you do is check your phone. Then you wake up. First thing you do is check your phone. Uh, and it's, uh, it's just the, the worst possible way to start the day and end it. And I was thinking about this the other day when, because I, I woke up, I checked my phone, and within maybe half a minute, maybe a minute and a half, maybe about 90 seconds, so I got on the phone, checked it, I'm scrolling through the news or something. So 90 seconds after being conscious again, I'm reading a story about, I think it was, um, it was a story about a mass stabbing in New York, I believe. So that's, that's the first thing I'm encountering. The first thing I'm in, ingesting and thinking about is a mass, is a stabbing. First thing. Worst way to start the day. And it's not just, why is it so horrible to start your day this way? Like, to start your day on your phone, why is that such a bad thing? Well, it's not just that you're focused on negativity right off the bat, though that is part of it. It's also that you're waking up and you're focusing on things that are far from you, right? That are, that are out of your control. You haven't gotten dressed yet or brushed your teeth or said good morning to your kids. And already your mind is off somewhere else, focused on something out there, right? Usually something terrible and dreary and bad. But even if it's not, it's still, whatever it's focused on, it, it's still, you're away. Your mind is away. And that's not how it should work. Instead, there should be a, a ramp up, kind of an on-ramp, sort of, where you start with things that are closest to you. Your mind begins its day situated in the present, in the immediate, aware of and engaged with your immediate surroundings. That's how we ought to start our days. That's how we should actually spend the vast majority of our days, too. And, and then there will be time to move your focus elsewhere if you must. But it can't be there right away, right the moment that you wake up. So that, that's something that we all, we all just need to stop doing. All right. One other thing I want to mention, uh, which is this. I've have, have had this one on the on the deck here for a few days. This is from the New York Post. It says, an opinion from New York City's eviction court has come down on the side of polyamorous unions. In the case of a West 49th Street LLC versus O'Neill, New York City Civil Court Judge Karen May Bakdion reportedly concluded that polyamorous relationships are entitled to the same sort of legal protection given to two-person relationships. West 49th Street LLC versus O'Neill involved three individuals, Scott Anderson and Marcus, Marcus O'Neill, uh, who lived together in a New York City apartment, and Anderson's husband, Robert Romano, who resided elsewhere. 
Anderson held the lease, and following his death, the building's owner argued that O'Neill had no right to renew the lease because he has a non-traditional family member. The attorney for the property owner said that O'Neill's affidavit, in which he claims himself as a non-traditional family member, is a fairy tale. According to LGBTQ Nation, the case returns to court after further investigation of the three individuals' relationship in her decision. The judge highlighted the importance of a previous case and asserted that the existence of a triad, no matter how they got along, should not automatically dismiss O'Neill's claim to non-eviction protections. Well, uh, whatever the particulars of this case, it's, it's no surprising. It's no surprise. We should be surprised by this. And we're going to see a lot more of this kind of thing because, of course, polyamorous, quote-unquote, unions will get legal recognition. Of course they will. Um, what, what's the argument against them at this point? Polygamy, polyamory, whatever you want to call it, can make a more compelling argument for itself and for marital legitimacy than same-sex unions can. I mean, there's historical precedent for polygamy. And most importantly, a polygamous union, if it's between a man and multiple women, or even the other way around, which you never hear about, but if it was, um, this, is, this, is, this is still a, a union that can be procreative. And as marriage exists by definition to serve as the foundation for the human family, polygamists can make their argument, can kind of stake their claim. Now, it's not an argument that I agree with by any means, I would say that polygamy is disordered, it's unhealthy, it's morally defective, it's an unstable structure for for kids. A child needs a mom and a dad, not four moms and a dad or the other way around. But the point is that if we as a society have opened up marriage to unions that cannot participate in its purpose and function at all, then on what basis do we exclude polygamy? Well, we, we don't, of course. There's, there, there's, there's the, the one argument against it, which is a very good argument, is out the window. Um, and that's, so this is always, what, is always what is meant when we talk about the slippery slope. Okay, that's why we said yesterday, uh, the conservatives who've been predicting slippery slope, saying we're on the slippery slope here and there, and, and, and we're always right. We've been right 100% of the time. And why is that? It's because we're not actually predicting it. Like prediction is not the right way of phrasing it. This is not a, a prophecy or a prediction. All we're doing is we are, you know, there's, there's a certain thing, action, whatever, that is being, uh, that we, we, we decided we're going to accept as a society. And then what we are, those of us who are pointing to the slippery slope, we are listening to the arguments that are being made in favor of this thing, whatever it is. And we're pointing out that, well, you know, you could take that argument fully intact and apply it to all these things over here that right now we all agree are unacceptable. And so if that's the case, then either there's something wrong with the thing you're arguing for right now, or there's something wrong with the arguments you're presenting for it. But if those are the only arguments, and I can take that argument, again, fully intact, and I can bring it over here to these things that, that, that all of us agree are bad, that should tell you something. That's all the slippery slope does. And that's why we're always right when we point to it. All right, let's get to the comment section.
The lemur of Madagascar says, the best part about Matt doing his episodes while touring is that we get to see him wear flannels every day again. Well, actually, this, these are, uh, this is not a flannel, and most of these are not flannels that I'm wearing. These are, it's plaid. Uh, flannel is a material, not a, not a, uh, not a pattern. So this is a, this is a misconception. This is, this is disinformation about flannel. But really, the reason that I dress like this is because it's just too cumbersome to pack a sports coat and dress shirt for each episode. So this is what you end up with. Colin says, I'm 42 and I've seriously considered going back to school to be a doctor. I wouldn't be one until I'm 50, but after hearing this, I'm going to do it. I'm undeterred in my aim. Yeah, please do. Uh, We need as many sane, normal doctors as we can possibly get. So I'm very happy to hear that. And uh, M. Houston says, Matt, I really needed to hear your words about getting through dark times. Your matter of fact and life one wisdom is helping me come to grips with my own dark times. Don't worry, no pressure on you because I'm getting help. Just wanted to let you know. That the, uh, the reminder that life is hard at times but worth living really helps. Well, I'm glad that, that it helped you. I do think it's important to be reminded that, that life can be difficult uh, and can include serious, sometimes immense suffering. And I think one of the reasons why we as a culture are generally so helpless in the face of suffering and darkness and so easily overcome by it is that we don't, we don't really have an understanding of this inevitable fact of life, that life comes with suffering. In earlier times, you know, in the past— Suffering was such a presence, it was such an inescapable reality that nobody really needed to be reminded of it. And then when it came along, it, 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 uh, they, they knew that it was going to come, they knew that suffering was part of life, and they dealt with it. Now, it's not to say that suicide and those sorts of things were unheard of in the past. Um, of course, it, it happened, but it wasn't as common as it is now, and especially among young people. The problem then is that the dark times come in, for, for modern people, a dark time comes, and the person who's suffering it may panic emotionally and come to believe, first, that it will never end, and second, that there must be something irrevocably broken inside of him or about him that has made him feel this way. Because he'll, he'll start to think, well, wait, people aren't supposed to feel like this. This is not right. Something's wrong here. Uh, and that's what leads to ultimate despair and sometimes suicide, I think. But if he can understand that no... You aren't broken, okay? You aren't experiencing something unprecedented, but rather you, you feel this way because you're alive. And it, it is sometimes painful to be alive. And I think people don't want to say that because it's, I, I guess it sounds depressing, but it's, it's actually not. I think it's hopeful. And it's also a reality. So however you feel about it, it's just true. But if somebody can understand that, then I think... Um, he'll have a better chance of getting out of it and emerging on the other end. I think of it, you know, this is not a perfect analogy, but as someone who, and I've said many times, admitted shamefully that I I experience uh, sometimes intense anxiety while flying, even though I fly all the time. And so not a perfect analogy, but this is one that comes to mind for me is that it's, it's maybe a bit like turbulence on an airplane and there are varying degrees of it. You know, you can get really serious turbulence. You can get turbulence. that isn't so bad. Um, but it, the turbulence comes from being in the sky. It just comes with flying. It's part of the experience. You can't, there's no such thing as flying. You couldn't fly for, you know, you, you probably can't make it through even one flight without a little bit of turbulence. In fact, you definitely can't. And if you fly a lot and you fly all the time, then you're going to experience turbulence all the time. It's unpleasant. You're not going to like it. But you're not going to panic if you understand that this is simply part of flying. This just it comes with the territory. But if you don't realize that, if nobody warns you, it's your first time flying, and no one, ever, no one ever told you about turbulence, you didn't know that that was a thing, and then you hit it, 
Now you start to panic because you think that something we're going down. Something's wrong here. So it's a little bit like, I, I think, the dark times and the suffering that we experience internally. Um, all right. Finally, Amanda says, the KFC description is completely accurate. I made the mistake of going through their drive through ones. I don't know what was going on, but I gave the guy my card. He closed the window, slammed it down on the cash register, and walked off. I sat there for 10 minutes before somebody came to the window to ask me where I, what I needed. Turns out the guy was the manager and just walked out mid-order. They gave me back my debit card and a bucket of cold chicken. And yes, they did charge me for the chicken. That, that is the classic American fast food experience, especially at KFC. And, and it's kind of, uh, in, in a way, you know, if you want to look on the bright side of it, it's sort of exciting. Because when you go to a place like KFC or Burger King, you just have no idea what you're going to get. You, you, you make your order, but the order is like, it's symbolic. Really, at a place like KFC, what you order, especially at the drive-thru, is it's a symbolic gesture because it, it, it will not, it, there's no re- necessarily any reason why it's going to have any relation to what is actually given to you. So you go through this whole thing, and it's just a roll of the dice, and you go get up to the window. You have no idea what you're actually going to get or if you're going to be given anything. Um, you don't know what kind of mood the person behind the cash register is going to be in. So it's kind of it's exciting. That's how I choose to look at it. Back in uh, June of 2020, Candace Owens took to social media to question the narrative about George Floyd and took a barrage of insults as a result. Celebrities insulted her, GoFundMe deplatformed her. As the attacks ramped up, Dailywire Plus gave her a platform to speak out without fear of being silenced and supported her in her investigation into Black Lives Matter. That organization raised $80 million through fundraising, but no one ever asked where the money went. Until now. Candace Owens reveals the truth in her new documentary, The Greatest Lie Ever Sold, now streaming exclusively on Daily Wire Plus. Because of our members, we're able to create a thriving alternative platform and pursue the truth wherever it leads. Daily Wire Plus members defeated the um, vaccine mandates in the Supreme Court. Daily Wire Plus members uh, helped us uncover the Loudoun County sexual assault cover-up. Daily Wire Plus members empowered me to expose Vanderbilt's practices of mutilating children in the name of gender affirmation care. And just over the weekend, Daily Wire Plus members caused PayPal to backtrack on its Orwellian fines for misinformation. Remember, we are speaking for you and fighting for your values, too. Free speech is our greatest weapon. And with the left's iron grip on our culture and the mainstream media, somebody has to step up and fill the void. If you're not a member yet, go to dailywire.com slash Walsh to, to subscribe and join us today. And then, of course, make sure to watch Candace Owens's Great new documentary, The Greatest Lie Ever Sold, now available exclusively on Daily Wire Plus. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. It may come as a surprise to you youngsters, but there was a time when Madonna was a pop culture phenomenon. She was a star who produced sensational chart-topping smash hits. Now, the songs weren't any good, of course. They were, uh, there was never a time when Madonna was, was making good music, but she was relevant, and she sang a lot about sex. And people said, wow, did you hear that new Madonna song? She sings about sex again. And music critics said that it was groundbreaking because music critics have been calling sexual songs groundbreaking for the past 55 years or so. But each generation has its own revolutionary pop stars who sing about sex. Madonna was replaced by Britney Spears, and then Britney Spears went insane and shaved her head, and she was replaced by Katy Perry, and then Katy Perry finished making her three songs, and she was replaced by somebody else, and then by somebody else, and then eventually Cardi B came along. And when Cardi B came along, music critics were astounded again. They said, my God, this one sings about sex in extra raunchy ways. This is the raunchiest we've heard yet. It's genius. 
But then came Lizzo and critics exclaimed, wow, she sings about sex and it's raunchy and she's obese. And they were smitten anew. The point is that Madonna's time came and went. She's now 64 years old, which translates to, you know, 6,400 years old in pop star years. She might as well have been born in the early days of the Sumerian Empire at this point. And you might think then that she would simply just uh, take her hundreds of millions of dollars, retreat to a private island and, and live out the rest of her life in peace, confident that she has passed the whorishness torch to a new generation of musical prostitutes. But Madonna has thrived on attention. She's lived off of it, fed on it like a vampire bat for decades. She doesn't know how to do anything else. And so grandma emerges from her mansion every once in a while, disfigured from plastic surgery, looking strikingly similar to a 1990s Marilyn Manson, actually. And she makes another bid for the world's attention. And that's what led to this TikTok video a few days ago, where she seems to come out of the closet. Watch. I told you, she looks like Marilyn Manson. She does. I don't, I don't mean that as an insult. Well, it's hard to say that as not an insult. But anyway, so she, she throws her, her panties towards the garbage can and she misses. And this is her strange metaphorical way of telling us that she's sexually attracted to women. Of course, she already made, she already, she already kind of made that announcement when she made out with Britney Spears on stage at the VMAs like two decades ago. So this is not exactly breaking news. If she was intending to be in the closet this whole time and keep it a secret, then she must have been uh, utilizing the hide in plain sight strategy. But why not go back to the well and, and come out of the closet again? This is a tried and true tactic among celebrities these days. Demi Lovato has come out of the closet seven different times as seven different versions of gay. And she, she just keeps on doing it. Everyone is desperate to come out of the closet these days, even if they were never in one to begin with. This week, we had a national coming out day, which featured lots of uh, similar public declarations, like this one from somebody named Lee Sharp. He tweets, happy coming out day. I am polyamorous and in an organically formed triad with my two lovely partners. We also each in various amounts date others as well. Just as people can love more than one parent or child or friend, romantic love for multiple people is valid too. Well, at least the triad is organically formed. Call me a purist, but I prefer organic triads. That's just what I prefer. Sometimes I'll buy a few bundles of them in the produce section at Wegmans, keep them in vases around the house. They make, you know, for nice decorations, especially because of the, of the bright colored hair. Now, in their case, the interesting thing is that the guy, he looks like a relatively normal guy, like he should be working at Office Depot or something, except for the hair, which looks like it was dyed with food coloring without his consent while he was passed out. The two women, on the other hand, are going for the typical uh, Star Trek villain aesthetic. But the point is that, though I cannot much relate to the sort of women that this guy is attracted to, he is still attracted to women. He's in a sexual relationship with women. We're at a point now where straight men can come out of the closet as straight men, and nobody questions it as long as their hair is dyed an unnatural color. I could color mine green and come out of the closet as a, I could come out of the closet as a man in a monoamorous relationship with one woman. And as long as I have the green hair, I too would be welcomed into the LGBT fold. Well, maybe not me specifically, but most people could do that. The LGBT initialism has been expanded precisely to include every possible sexual orientation. That's how we end up with labels like demisexual, which describes people who need to feel 
an emotional connection uh, to someone in order to be sexually attracted to them. Otherwise known as just like that's women. That's that's how women are. They're also gray sexuals. Those are people who are sometimes sexually attracted to other people and sometimes not. So if you've ever been in a room and not felt sexually attracted to somebody in it, then you're gray sexual. Congratulations, you're you're LGBT. And then there are uh, there are aromantic people, which are those who not not to be confused with asexual. Aromantic. Those are people who experience sexual attraction but often have no romantic feelings or attachments that go along with it. So they're, they're sexual, but they're not, they're not romantic. Which, according to almost any single woman on the dating scene, describes almost every single man on the dating scene. The LGBT community is, is the only oppressed victim group in human history that people are desperate to be associated with. It's the only victim group that people would pretend they are a part of for the sake of social status rather than pretending they're not a part of for the sake of self-preservation, which is usually historically how it goes with um, victim groups. It holds this unique position among historical victim groups because, of course, it is not a victim group at all. Quite the contrary. It is the group with the highest cultural status, the most social capital. And you always know what that group is. And you know, the, the, the saying is, like, whatever group you're not allowed to criticize, that's the group with the, uh, that's at the, at the top of the hierarchy. And that's true with the LGBT also. But another way of looking at this is, like, what, what is the group that people are clamoring to be in? What's the club everybody wants to be a part of? And that partly explains, too, the extreme rocket-like rise in gender nonconforming so-called identities. As the Daily Call reports this week, Maryland's largest public school district saw a 582% increase in the number of students identifying as gender nonconforming in just two years, according to internal data posted to an educator's Twitter page. Montgomery Public County Schools, um, Montgomery County Public Schools gathered this data from forms school counselors fill out when students approach them to talk about gender identity issues. Because the numbers rely on self-reporting, the near sevenfold increase from 2019 to 2022 could indicate a massive increase in the number of gender diverse students, an environment that encourages those students to be more open with counselors or both. Um, during the 2019 to 2020 school year, a total of 35 students reported gender nonconformity to a counselor, including four elementary school students, 19 middle school students, and 12 high schoolers. During the 2021 to 2022 school year, the total number of stu- students reporting gender nonconformity spiked to 239, including 18 elementary school students, 129 middle schoolers, and 92 high schoolers. So, kids in school have gotten the message. How could they not? It's screamed at them everywhere they turn. That being a normal straight person who identifies as their own biological sex is uncool and uninteresting. Um, And so they're, they're trying to keep up with the trend, as kids always have. The difference is that when I was a kid, keeping up with the trend meant wearing jeans that didn't fit, for a brief, strange moment in the 90s, it also meant carrying a yo-yo around in your pocket and showing off your yo-yo tricks. That was a thing. Kids, it was a simpler time. Now, keeping up with the trend means fundamentally changing your identity. But it is more than just a matter of trends. We're also witnessing, I think, the death of personality. People have lost the ability to talk about their personalities, and they're increasingly losing their ability to develop personalities in the first place. LGBT identification and gender nonconformity are, among other things, a replacement for personality. Those who claim these identities will pretend that they're unique and independent and all of that, but in fact, they are fleeing from 
the unique, from independence. They seek to label and categorize every part of themselves with nothing left over. Nothing left of them after they've claimed all of their letters in the LGBT alphabet soup. And that's why they all end up looking the same and sounding the same and thinking the same way about everything. It's no wonder that someone like Madonna has jumped on the trend. Her life has been nothing but a series of publicity stunts. She hasn't had a true human personality for decades. She doesn't even have a true human face anymore. She has dissolved whatever was authentic and real within herself and traded it in for whatever it is that she is now. But at least she made some money on the deal, which is more than can be said for most of the people who are following in her footsteps. Still, I think she is the one who is today canceled. And that'll do it for this portion of the show as we move over to the members block. Hope to see you there. If not, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed.